faster than a struggling turtle. More powerful than Gary Rosen. Oh, I can't believe that. Able to leap tall juggalos in a single bound. <laughs> Look, down on the ground. It's a germ. It's a worm. It's 508. Bursting from the subterranean depths of Wormtown like the mighty Shy Halud. It's 508. A show about Worcester. It's March the 1st, 2019. This is 508, a show about Worcester. I'm Mike Benedetti asking the question, what's the most gentrifying thing you've ever done? Today on the show, we have Worcester urbanist Eleanor Gilmore. Ellie, do we have an affordable housing problem in Worcester? You bet we do. Then let's talk about it today. We've been talking forever about having like the gentrification episode where we talk about gentrification, we talk about affordable housing, and we just do it, and it's like knock down, drag out, yeah. throw down. Should I have brought, I didn't bring my boxing gloves. I, this is a verbal, this is a verbal fight. I have a pen if necessary, hot coffee. <laughs> I'm ready, I'm ready. Even though this is sort of an arrogant thing to do, I'm going to let you throw the first punch. Sure. So do we have an affordable housing problem in Worcester? We do have an affordable housing problem in Worcester. Tell me about that. So, you know, I think affordable housing is a term that gets thrown around a lot. We often don't take the time to stop and define what it is we're talking about when we say affordable housing. So the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, defines affordable housing as housing for which an occupant spends no more than 30% of their income on gross rent and utilities. Right? It says nothing about subsidy. It says nothing about um, where you live or what kind of unit you live in. It just says you should spend how much you spend. It's about income. Like it's my understanding that there used to be sort of an old rule of thumb that you would spend a week's wages for a month's rent. Yeah, and so like from the 1800s or something. And so this 30 percent number basically comes from this long, long-held guideline. Um, but that's the level of where where we have affordable housing, or, or we don't. Right. And in Worcester, we have a lot more affordable housing than like the average city in the state. I think. But we do. still, there's a lot of people who are spending a lot of their income on rent. Yeah. So if you spend 30% of your, if you spend more than 30% of your income on housing, you're considered cost burdened. If you can, if you spend more than 50% of your income on housing, you're considered extremely cost burdened. And what we know is that the more money you have to spend on housing, the more choices you have. So if I make $100,000 a year and I choose to rent then I have a lot more units that are available to me because 30% of my income at $100,000 a year is much greater than someone who's earning, let's say, $30,000 a year. And so when we think about affordable housing, it's, it's both how much you have to spend on that housing and then what units are available to you. What does the housing stock meet the demand? Do we need to understand the causes of this affordable housing problem in order to fix this affordable housing problem? Yeah, we do. So, if, you know, if you're going to solve any problem, you you need to know why you have a problem in the first place. Um, housing is both an economic issue and also, so it's, it's an economic issue, it's a public policy issue, it is an architecture issue, it's a zoning issue, it's a human issue. Um, housing is also about... the the health that people have. So talk about social determinants of health. Um, We know that where you live and the quality of that living space directly impacts your health. Do you have 
good street lighting near your apartment? Do you feel safe? Do you have good heat? That kind of stuff. So what should we be? So what should what should we be doing? Because like I'm looking at the numbers, you know, um, I'm looking at like numbers from the research bureau, the much maligned Worcester Regional Research Bureau, <laughs> and they're estimating that something like a third of the households in Worcester are cost burdened. Yes. Um, and so uh, that's like a lot of people who are spending, or that, or or I should say, that's like a housing market that doesn't work like we think it's going to work for people, right? Mm -hmm. Like we think that there's gonna be housing for you at 30% of your income. And that if you're poor, you have a littler, maybe worser house. If you're rich, you have a big mansion. Mm -hmm. But whatever it is, there's something at 30% of your income that's gonna work for you, that's gonna keep you out of the rain. Yeah. And this is not what people are finding. No, and and part of that is because we don't always have a, a grasp of what our housing stock looks like. Um, The Chamber of Commerce is currently conducting a housing study that will address that. They are looking very deeply into what what does the housing stock in Worcester look like? Who's living there? Where are they living? What are they living in? And that's important. But before that, we're, we're grappling with people who don't have enough money to afford the existing units, right? This isn't even about new construction. This is about existing units. So when you talk about addressing affordable housing and, and why why do we see an affordability crisis in a city like Worcester, we need to think in terms of what existing housing units do we have and are they rental or are they homeownership? And then we need to look at who are they available to? Is it a high income market or is it a low income market? Because they're they're different. So as I right. mentioned earlier, housing is partially about economics and it has submarkets and they behave a little bit differently. Um, and so when we walk around saying like, oh well, like we yeah we ha- we have affordable housing. We we have more affordable housing than other places in the in the Commonwealth. Well, we we do, but people still can't necessarily afford that housing right so why like why why does that mean we should stop building affordable housing why does that mean we should stop uh addressing affordable housing and having these conversations about it just getting to this and the i think what you were getting at earlier is people cite the 13.4 percent number worcester's right 13.4 percent of worcester's housing stock is considered Affordable. That number comes from the state's subsidized housing index. Yes, um, and it's it's part of a, a a law called Chapter 40B, which really, first of all, was designed back in like the late 60s, so it's old and a little bit less relevant now. The second thing is that it w- it was really designed to help suburbs with more um, zoning restrictions. It was designed so that they could bypass those zoning restrictions and achieve a higher level of affordable housing. Urban areas don't really have that problem. When it comes to affordability in housing, like where do professionals actually draw the line in starting the conversation between, so like we know we need to have affordable housing, but we also know that we need to have an economy that allows people to afford something. So it seems like in a weird way where Worcester is might almost be like a negative feedback loop if we don't change anything, right? So we know that it's dif- there's there's a a large seemingly large percentage of the population would have difficulty 
uh, affording, uh, finding affordable housing in the city of Worcester. But we also know we have a relatively poor city, like from an economic perspective. I mean, e- even the folks that think they're doing well in Worcester, by comparison, we're all poor in right. the city. Our rich people are poor by comparison to the city. And a lot of that is, I, I think, due to uh, unintentional neglect over generations in terms of uh, the, the, the line I always use is like, since I was a little kid, always heard people saying, just hang, hang tight, jobs are coming back. Always referring to like uh, manufacturing jobs, factory jobs that are just gone from this region. That that right. post-industrial era that is what it is. So, like, how do we how do we find that like intersection between having a city where people can live comfortably, regardless of who they are, but also having an economy that can support uh, people living here in a way that you know in assuming using mike's line that that socialism isn't on the ballot this year i do have an affordable housing plan here in my packet that's a straight up socialist one that i can get into later yeah no see, oh, but th- that's the problem though is like it, the plan might be great on paper but it's not up for it's not on the election this year so it's like we we do need to figure out like what goes first right, right. Do, and and as is always the case in i think any system some people are going to be left behind that's, that shouldn't make anybody feel warm and fuzzy, and it certainly isn't an excuse to hurt people in the process. But I think in any system, people get left behind. Where do we draw the line in terms of keeping Worcester in stasis mm-hmm. and not changing anything to make it as comfortable as possible for the folks that are here versus focusing on uh, efforts that could actually improve our economy and hopefully uh, provide better employment opportunities to lift up those that are currently struggling just to be here? It's a big question, and it's a <laughs> difficult one to answer. Mike and I were talking earlier, right? There, there is no silver bullet to solve yeah. a housing crisis. We also know that because the government has programs that provide things like rent subsidies, mm-hmm. we, know that, we know that affordability isn't new. Affordability right. problems aren't new. We've been grappling with this for decades. And I think where, where Worcester falls into this Creating housing or preserving housing that allows people to live comfortably is, I don't think that that's counterproductive to having a good economy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, first, you want people to live comfortably in their housing so that they're spending the rest of that income, if they're spending, let's say, right, they're spending 30% of their income on housing, that they're spending that other 70% on things that go back into the Worcester economy. So it's, it, we kind of have to bring things back to equilibrium. Right. I'm a huge fan of getting to the basics. Um, affordable housing is a very, 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 very complex topic. It, it carries a lot of taboos. Um, so we need to think about what is affordable housing? Uh, what is, how is it defined? Who builds it? How much does it cost? Where is it located and why? I think mm-hmm. the where is it located and why is an important component of that uh, because it goes into the history of housing um the history of racist housing policies yeah you you know you can't you cannot separate that and then we start looking at you know what are our land use policies why why do certain neighborhoods look the way they do what what policies do we have on the books and how do they inform our housing practices and and even though um de jure segregation in housing is illegal now we we still have these systems that kind of that perpetuate segregation racially economically and so once we look at that then we start thinking about okay well who are the decision makers who in this system has power to make decisions about housing Mm -hmm. um and do they understand the things like the the seven 
questions that I just posed. Right. Do they understand the definition and who builds it and how much does it cost? And if they don't, then that's where we need to focus a little bit of our energy to make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, no, and that's what I wish we had more of a... Con- Mike and I have talked about this a lot in the past, and I'm a little clunky when it comes to the history, but I, I think it fits in well with what you just... Especially when it comes to matters of race and a recent history uh, in terms of housing. So, like, you could probably make an argument and be correct that in Massachusetts, Central Mass, whatever, we didn't have the... Uh, actual line drawing type of segregation that you found when it came to housing. But what we did have, because we had a huge housing boom post-World War II, was the reality that uh, like my grandparents' generation were basically given mountains of equity by virtue of going to World War II. And the housing component of the GI Bill that allowed for people basically to get free homes Mm -hmm. wasn't open to people of color immediately after the war. And that is something, so again, in my head, like a lot of what we have in Worcester, if we can agree, which I think we all did, that Worcester is a relatively uh, non-affluent city to begin with. What we do have in with the people who would be consider themselves the haves uh, is this system of equity that was just handed to them yeah. two generations ago. And I've always thought like the easiest solution. I know it's nothing's an easy solution, but the at least the starting point would be like, well, why, we have like public housing systems. Like, why don't we start looking at those as a way to build equity so people can actually get out of those systems yeah. instead of consistently shaming people for being in them longer than you know a given administrator feels that they should be, yeah. which is totally counterproductive. But there, there, there's an interesting. I think it's somewhere in New York that they're they're piloting this idea of um, like co-op public housing Mm -hmm. and it's it's fairly new um and so there isn't a lot of of data to determine how successful that is but i think the point that they're trying to drive home with this initiative is that you should always have some type of ownership over your housing when you make when you make a mortgage payment for example that's good for your credit Right. right if you miss a mortgage payment then you have enough other good payments that you're fine. But when you make payments on rent, that doesn't go into your credit score unless you miss a payment. Right. And so we have these systems where we know that people who are renters are predominantly you know, lower income and communities of color. And then we have home ownership, which is predominantly white, wealthy, a little bit older, right? Um, and so you know we have those types of systems that, when when you think about housing, you're like, oh, I never would have thought about a credit score, right? Right, but that that's how we have these systems that are layered and layered and layered that have existed for a really long time, that contribute to our affordability problems that we we overlook when we think about kind of large scale solutions to housing. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how to get our heads around the solutions because there's lots of possible solutions. They all have lots of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. None of them are a silver bullet. No. Some of the solutions are like um, market-oriented solutions. Yes. So like one of them is to say we should have more upzoning, that is, which is to say that we should make it possible for people to, ha- to build more dense housing um, in places where people – really want to live mm-hmm. um, and this probably at some point down the line affects housing prices there was an interesting study a guy out of MIT did um, on some areas of Chicago that were up that were up zoned and comparing things and he said that over the course of a, of a five-year period at least it didn't help with the housing problem at all right it did make it did make it more expensive that area more expensive so up zoning those properties did make people say yeah these are actually better properties now that they've been up zoned 
but it didn't, within a five-year period at least, fix the problem. Right. Uh, there's a lot of these things, because housing turns over so slow, that that maybe that's part of the challenge is that you're going to do them and it's not going to work in five years and you're going to be like, well, it's a 50-year solution and people are going to be like, well, I guess I'll take your word for it. Well, you just yeah. keyed into something else too that I think is important in the context of Worcester as well, where house, the, the, the pace at which housing turns over, Worcester is a relatively old city where the housing tends to turn over even less than, especially in the the, the, the dense single-family home neighborhoods, uh, you don't have the kind of turnover that I think we see in other major markets. People tend to buy a home and they die in that home. They stay in it for a very long time. So you end up with what I I think appears to be a massive... If you had higher turnover, you wouldn't see those giant bumps in price uh, that I think like what you're seeing now... he almost, for at least last year, he almost had a race to see who could push uh, home prices high as humanly possible because there were clearly buyers that were out there, but they weren't local buyers. They were coming in from the suburbs because now Worcester has this little bit of a sheen to it and whatnot, and suddenly the people that were making fun of Worcester for the last 30 years want to come back and live here. But they were artificially driving up prices on homes that had been off the market for 30 or 40 years that you don't because we don't have a lot of turnover. And if we had more turnover... I don't think those bumps would seem as drastic. It seems like entire generations turn over their homes. Well, at I once. don't. I mean, I mean that's probably true. That seems like a problem we just have to live with, though, right? Like we're not going to try to increase the amount of housing turnover. Uh, well, that doesn't no. seem like a good idea well, at all. I, I think I think part of the issue is that there are different pockets of the housing market. You have your owners and your renters, and then within that, you have your high income renters and low income renters, high income owners and low income mm-hmm. owners, and they all behave a little bit differently, and. I wanted to just go back to your point earlier about upzoning. I'm I'm a huge fan of zoning and zoning reform. Well, and you know we've done stuff like this in Worcester, right? Like I um I know that the city council has made efforts at uh, uh, legalizing like in law in law apartments mm-hmm. or um what do you call it grandparent apartments? This thing where granny like, flats or accessory del- accessory there dwelling you go. units. It'd be like yeah, like basically like we have a you know we have a we have a, a little cottage in the yard and can we like rent this to our relatives who are maybe by some other le- previously it would have been illegal to have all of these unrelated but on the same token we've also passed local ordinances to uh, criminalize the idea of too many people living in one house right yeah. and not like absurd numbers but just like but four. going back to like yeah I mean we're, we're, we're going deep into a universe where uh, what is it four unrelated females it's like a flop house or something like yes. I mean we've gotten, done some really weird things with housing to limit the affordability of housing as well too so these kinds of market thing market based things which are about saying we're going to like decrease regulation or we're going to move things around so that you know you can build more dense housing if you're willing to have more uh, earmarked affordable housing as part of it or whatever like these are all solutions which operate slowly um, you know if you got a situation where a lot of people are paying twice as much as they should be paying for housing I don't think I haven't seen anybody who's been able to make the case that like if we got rid of uh the lion's share of regulation that somehow the price of housing would drop by half. Right. So I think when when you talk about zoning, when you talk about regulation reform, it's important to remember that, again, there there is no one size fits all. If you're going to allow for higher density in single family residential areas, which are cost prohibitive because lot size means more money and it's costlier to build on those larger lots, then, you know, 
that's that's one component. But then you also think about okay, well, mixed income um, residential projects. So a private developer agrees to accommodate a certain percentage of their units to be affordable. You need to do a combination of these. And what's more important is looking at it through an equity lens with an equity framework. So Seattle did this really interesting thing a few years ago. They embarked on how they're going to address this problem, but they took it a step further and they said, how are we going to address this with an equity lens? How are we going to take what we know to be existing bad policy and reform it and do it in a way that doesn't allow us to make the exact same mistakes that we've been making for the past 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so they put together this whole plan um, that was championed by the city, which is incredibly important. Your city administration and everyone who makes those decisions, they have to be able to publicly talk about affordable housing from an educated point of view and to say, like, we want reform. People deserve reform, and they deserve reform that is reflective of the community that we're serving. And so Seattle looked at when you're upzoning, right? You need to make commercial space, for example, um, smaller. So reducing commercial plot sizes so that low-income businesses can afford sure. to have their businesses succeed in a high opportunity area or that you you attach all of these affordability restrictions um, to these newly zoned areas. I think this relates at least somewhat. I sent you something earlier in the week, Mike, and not directly related to housing, but it, it had me thinking about the conversation we were going to have. It was an article about Boston and the way the legislature and the Boston city government is working to basically get rid of um, beer gardens this summer or, or mm. clamp down on them a bit uh, to make it a little bit more friendly or accommodating to existing restaurants. But the point was, the, 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 the headline of the Globe, which I thought was genius because it showed a level of self-awareness I'm not really familiar with the Globe see, having, was kind of poking fun at Boston as never having been a fun city in the first place. So it only makes sense that they would want to crack down on something that people actually seem to enjoy. Point is, it got me thinking that like I th- feel like one of the conversations we never have on a local level is what we actually want as a community, yep. right? So like you can pick any one little pocket or demographic within a community and that that group knows what it wants, but it might not necessarily match up with the majority of people in the community. And the majority might actually not have any, again, like I guess mentioned earlier, like Worcester is an aging city. Chances are very, very good that the majority of the population has no idea what I want, never mind somebody who's just like getting out of college or whatnot yeah. and thinking about where they're going to spend the rest of their lives. And I feel like there's a big part of that when it comes to housing. It's really easy for a stable, relatively stable middle class to look at folks who are having difficulty uh, making ends meet from a housing perspective and say, well, yeah, we should put, you know, uh, hit the brakes and make sure that we figure their stuff out before uh, we work on increasing my personal equity in my home or yeah. whatever the case may be. And I'm not familiar with any time that here in Worcester we've had like real big picture conversations like show of hands who wants to have a good time like show of hands who wants affordable housing oh i feel like well i think we know that people don't want affordable housing but how would we know that by looking at who like our voting records that's 17 percent of the population like i mean there's there's no we we don't have any metric to go by to even begin to judge what the 200,000 people 
Yeah, this is, I, think, I feel like we've had this conversation plenty of times. Like every time we feel like we figured out the city, that's when you find a whole new pocket of the city, a whole new po- pocket of refugees or immigrants or whatnot. So, so maybe secretly, yesterday. there's a huge untapped interest in affordable housing in Worcester, much as or, there was a huge <laughs> untapped interest in vegetarianism. I think there's probably right. a huge untapped uh, knowledge base when it comes to understanding the problem in a real sense. Uh, and, and figuring out a good solution long term to to make that uh, to, to fix that problem. I right? would agree. I think it's 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 less about the topic of affordable housing specifically and more about what do people want out of their community when you when you ask someone to envision yeah. like what 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 is a neighborhood to you? What is a community? What what are the the physical elements? What are the emotional elements? What are the vis- visual elements? And and how do we help you? achieve that level of community and and how do we work together so that you feel empowered to promote that kind of community amongst your neighbors and amongst the people you go to school with or or go to your faith-based place and and the people you see at the store right like it's creating community i think is a little bit when you take a step back right that's what we're talking about the affordable housing piece is is a little bit more about Numbers. It also is has a lot to do with with prejudice and and misinformation. So and also federal and state pressures that are out of our control, yes. right? I mean, on on all fronts. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but it, it just, just absolutely honing in on the idea that it, it's so multifaceted that it's probably not something that one can be tackled on a local level in any meaningful way. I disagree uh, with that. Yeah, okay, well, go ahead. I, that, that I want to hear about. Because, yeah, I feel like so far, I thought this was going to be an episode where I was really going to have my assumptions challenged, and I feel like it, they haven't been, which is, this is an impossible problem. Not a problem that is not worth working on, but basically, we're never going to solve this. Yeah. Whenever whenever That's we so start saying, like, you know, an important <laughs> well, part so of this problem is, like, institutional racism or whatever. It's like, good luck, good luck solving institutional racism on, like, any kind of reasonable timeline as a as a part of but so this is also housing. why going back to what I mentioned earlier about equity why I think that's so important in a, in a key part of the conversation that's missed is a lot of the housing market and I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of buying but definitely the rental market fits into this as well too yeah it, it's so dependent on external pressures like federal state and regional economies not just what we're doing locally and a lot of that is very much like a roll of the dice sort of thing when the market as a home buyer, you always hope that when you're sh- you have the ability to buy a home when the market collapses, right? So you're going to get the best value for your dollar, and that's only possible if you've built up a, 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 a personal uh, level of wealth that allows you to drop 10 20%, maybe more, mm-hmm. on purchasing a home. So you to even enter into that marketplace, you already have to have been able to build up enough equity as, as an individual or a family to just prepare for that. And then keep your fingers crossed that you know the something is the wheels are going to fall off the bus yeah. and allow you to jump on board. Otherwise, you know you, you've got a trajectory economically where uh, home prices, whether it's rental or, or, or buying, are always increasing and usually at a rate that's higher than uh, you know economic growth. Yeah. So you could never actually catch up to that. There, there's so much of it that is a gamble. That it, and that's the only reason I say the outside forces I think have have, have as much to do with the um, the local forces. Yeah. And why I, 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 there's only so much that I think the local forces can 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 conquer on that front. Right. I mean, we we as as a municipality can't necessarily do a, an overhaul of of federal policy or, or right. federal budget issues. But when I think about the local level and the changes that we can make, I go back to my work as an organizer. 
not my specific work, but just being an organizer, right? The 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 purpose of of community organizing is about capacity building and you know breaking down those 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 barriers to access and and shifting traditional conceptions of power and that is inextricably linked to this conversation about sure. housing so no we we're not going to solve institutional right. racism in a particular timeline but what we do get to do and i think what our obligation is is getting people together and saying and 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 asking them how do you feel about your community right what things do you i don't like? think you want to ask people how they feel about worcester but I do anyway. I feel like that's going to be a very negative meeting. Well, just don't well, do it on Facebook or in a Telegram <laughs> sure, Gazette like, article, right? I mean, nobody, it doesn't have to be, you know, we don't have to like hold hands and, and, and hug each other and say like, wow, right. Worcester is, is a utopia. It, first of all, it's, I love Worcester, but Worcester is not a utopia. Right. There, there, we have things that we're not doing well. We have things that we're doing so well. And there mm-hmm. are such incredible people in this community, but there are also people that are, that we're missing, that are, right. are not getting to reap the benefits of this of this renaissance. And so when we talk about housing, we, we need to like who who lives in affordable housing and, and, and are we asking them how they feel? And yes, it, it is a long, cumbersome I, I process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm asking them how they feel. I don't know, they're feeling frustrated. Yeah. That's how they're feeling. They're feeling frustrated. They're feeling disenfranchised. They're feeling like, you know, there's all of this stuff that's happening in Worcester that either isn't accessible to them mm-hmm. or is eventually going to cause problems. And when I say they, this is not, you know, these are just some of the people that I've you're spoken to. You're talking about to. those people. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. How dare you? I want to talk about everybody getting together. One of the one of the papers that I read that was actually helpful in clarifying my thinking um, most of the papers that I've read, honestly, like here's yeah, a beautiful. Yeah, what are your sources? I'm really, a, I'm genuinely curious. Here's he a beautiful. Here's up. a beautiful. Oh, okay. Here's yeah. a beautiful he paper. This is co-written by Lance Freeman, who's one of the great scholars of gentrification, mm-hmm. and his paper is called "Producing Affordable Housing in Rising Markets: What Works." And I wrote the answer on the front. Nothing. The conclusion: nothing. Oh, like. Um, I mean, they they I mean they basically give this answer like, well, you know, if we get some people together and we do some whatevers, but they don't have an answer. You know who has an answer? Who? Uh, Ryan Cooper and Peter Gowan, who wrote a, a paper for the People's Policy Project. This is hmm. uh, Matt Brunig's think tank. I love these guys. I'm not a big socialist, but I love these guys, in part because they have great design, and in part because they're just willing to put it out there. And they're like, you know what? Let's just do it. Let's just go full socialist solution on this. With a modern take on brutalist housing. You know how we're <laughs> going to do it, Brendan? Is we're just going to borrow money. We're just going to tax people. We're just going to do whatever. We're going to get the money together. And here's what we're going to do. And this is going to solve affordable housing in America. Over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. we're going to build 10 million uh, housing units of municipal housing units. They are going to be uh, mixed income. It's going to be probably mostly uh, below the 30%, but there's going to be some that are closer to market rate, mm-hmm. which are going to help the project work economically. Um, this is interesting to me because I did some math, and if Worcester got a proportional amount of municipal housing units built in it, that would be saying that we should build 5,700 housing units in Worcester over the next 10 years. This would be uh, this would be 7% more housing in mm-hmm. the city of Worcester, which would be a lot, but not a crazy lot. 
uh, it would be 60% more affordable housing in Worcester, which would actually would be a crazy lot. And it would be uh, basically triple the number of um, uh, units that are like under municipal control. So taking what you just mentioned, when you're talking to people in your universe about affordable housing, mm-hmm. how many people that are currently in, say, uh, municipal municipally funded housing programs tell you that their dream in life is to continue living in a housing project for the rest of their life. I mean, but this wouldn't be a housing project. Well, well, if they're state owned, that's exactly what they are. Not, not everyone. I mean, that's exactly what they are. (laughs) First of all, there are different types of affordable housing. You have small scale, you can have high density, large scale. And so like, I'm just speaking to what Mike was talking about. So I guess what I would say is that not, not everyone necessarily feels like where they're living is a bad thing. I mean, you know, if you want to be a renter for the rest of your life, by all means. But there are a lot of people who feel who or who know that where they're at is maybe temporary. Yeah. That they they would like to move on to something else. And I think, excuse me, I'm no, no, a little sick this week. What what we have to remember is that often affordable housing is built in neighborhoods that are not as nice, and therefore. There is this perception of poor safety, and there are sidewalks that are not as well taken care of, that there is more trash. And that leads into this idea like, well, I'm looking for better housing, right? Like, in some ways, like, you're always looking for better Mm -hmm. housing. And so, what bothers me sometimes, and we have to be very, very cautious when we talk about how to address affordable housing, is sometimes. People who are white progressives have a tendency to get overexcited about all of these new fancy policies that we can implement. It's going to make life better for poor people. (laughs) And that and that is without ever having met one. Right. And that's really problematic (laughs) because it it perpetuates the system that, you know, well, you know, progressivism is the best and we know what's right and we're just going to barrel through and advocate for it and get it done and then everyone's going to be happy affordability problems solved not solved because in a lot of ways sometimes these progressive policies don't protect or don't support the communities that they maybe are actually designed to support and that's because all communities are different they have Mm -hmm. different needs they look different the economics are different and the the resources that they get from their government or other like nonprofits are different. And so when you when you think about upzoning or or other types of zoning reform, for example, that traditionally can increase the production of affordable housing, it may work in um one neighborhood, but it may not work in the neighborhood over. Right. And so, like, how how do you reconcile that? How do you balance the needs of both? Because there, right, because there's an information problem, and this is why the only solutions that are truly going to work for affordable housing are libertarian, market based <laughs> oh, solutions. No. We'll, go, we'll, we'll get to those after this break. <laughs> so, this is five hundred eight. No, Worcester's I, libertarian voice. We'll be back with more. You're listening to Unity Radio on one hundred two point nine FM and streaming at WorcesterMag.com. Unity Radio is Worcester's community connection. Out, out, other lights, out all, and over each quivering form, the curtain of funeral pall. 
comes down with the brush of a storm, while the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy, man and its hero, the conqueror worm. Live from the hidden depths of Wormtown, this is 508. So I was just kidding before. There's no good libertarian solution to affordable housing. What There's there is no good libertarian solution to anything. Oh, come but. on, this is Worcester's libertarian voice. You can't. You can't. I mean, you, <laughs> you can have that. You can have that attitude, but I can't have that attitude. Oh, I show. see. I see. Fundamentally, I think this is a simple problem, and it has a simple solution. Like I, with all due respect to you and all your fancy book learning, <laughs> the problem is that people don't have money. Yep. There is money in the world, so the solution is to give people money, which mm-hmm. is to say. Universal basic income solves this problem 100%. Okay, so now I want to get into the uh, uh, related really issue, absolutes which is <laughs> I want to get into a related issue, which is gentrification. But first, I want to I want to um, this is like kind of the best thing that I found. Um, it's called Why America's New Apartment Buildings All Look the Same. And uh, <laughs> just imagine all the new stuff around the kind of Front Street to Major Taylor to uh, Franklin mm-hmm. Street, that block. Justin Fox's article for Bloomberg. The reason that these buildings all look the same, and these are, as he says, they range from three to seven stories tall and can stretch from blocks. They're usually full of rental apartments, but they can also house college dorms, condominiums, hotels, or assisted living facilities. Close to city centers, they tend toward a blocky, often colorful modernism. Out in the suburbs, their architecture is more likely to feature peaked roofs and historical motifs. He figures that in 2017, 187,000 new housing units were completed in buildings of 50 units or more in the U.S., and by his informal massaging of the data, well over half of those were in blocky mid-rises. Uh, this has been described to him as five over, over one, five stories of apartments over a ground floor podium of parking and or retail. And he traces this back to a guy, Los Angeles architect Tim Smith, who realized that by, put, by putting five wood stories over a one-story concrete podium and covering more of a one-acre lot than a high-rise could fill, he could get this apartment thing that he was developing at 60 to 70 percent of the original cost. And he basically figured, like, here's how I can build taller, bigger buildings and use wood rather than masonry yeah. if I do such and such and such and such and jump through these hoops in the code. And once he did it, everybody in the country is like, this is great. We can build, like, these buildings. All buildings are going to be these buildings. I tried to look this up. I couldn't find this. Maybe I'm hallucinating. Do you remember that, like, Connie Lukes or somebody, some city councilor had one of these really casual... Was it Mike Gaffney? It was Mike Gaffney. And it was one of the things that I I actually got to give him some credit for, man, because it's like when they were constructing uh, 145 Front, he was the one who brought up that they're building stick uh, apartment buildings. And it's like with all the things that we do on a small scale, in terms of fire code, like, I mean, you could have a three-decker in Worcester as a landlord. And again, I think a lot of this feeds into conversations of affordability and whatnot, too. You you, you, you make improvements to your building, you automatically trigger, uh, 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 there, there are triggers where now you have to update code, fire right. code being the big one. Right. Things like sprinklers come into play. Whether it was uh, well-intended or just being cynical, I, I, I have no idea. But I think it is one of those things that probably uh, was worth p- someone pointing out that, yeah, we're, we're building a, a, a giant box made of matchsticks uh, in well, the middle of downtown Worcester. And that's... See, I'm remembering, a, I'm remembering a second one, which I feel like was one of these very informal ones that Connie or somebody throws out, but I wasn't able to find it, so I mm-hmm. could, could be hallucinating, which was just basically like, 
all these buildings downtown are boxy and ugly and dumb. Oh, Connie definitely did say yeah. that, and can, she's right. I can mean, we can we tell them to stop building dumb buildings? Tulip aluminum aluminum panels are, are 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 today's design reviewed. Yeah, no, review. right. But it's amazing how. So I, I feel like there's a second part of this story where those aluminum panels, uh, sometimes they're steel that are always taupe or some shade of beige uh, on this kind of construction. I was seeing that a lot when I was with the state uh, working in school construction. And I feel like that's one of the things that happens on a municipal level is, you know, you see something that's brand new get inserted into the marketplace from an architectural perspective. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly that's like, well, you've already bought into it. It might right. be just be one we building. We have to implement that. But that's, I mean... I think it also speaks to the evolution of, of architecture, yeah. right? So Worcester, as a as a post-industrial city, has all of these you know incredibly beautiful brick buildings, and brick is one of my favorite materials, right on. just aesthetically. But then you start seeing over time, right? We have all, also these like super brutalist mm -hmm. structures, and that's tragic because they're <laughs> horrific. Um, but now we're moving into that. Like Worcester, I think, is starting to kind of catch up with where larger cities have expanded their development and, and they do these kind of cookie cutter developments. And I and I wouldn't say across the board that they're all awful. And I, I like the look of of new buildings. Um in some cities they actually have really great color. Yeah. Um and that's nice because it adds to the aesthetic of the of the overall neighborhood. But, you know, what buildings look like mm -hmm. matters right it helps create a sense of place and when we're talking about gentrification that's that's part of it aesthetic is part of gentrification so here's what i want to say about gentrification so i'm looking at a paper here by ingrid gould allen from nyu called can gentrification be inclusive all these papers have great questions in the <laughs> in the title the answer is no or at least if she has an answer she did not share it with me in her paper here um Sometimes and academics don't, she, with all due respect. Right, and so she's she's descri she's defining gentrification as helpful. She says uh, it describes relative increases in household incomes, education levels, and or percentage of residents who are white in initially low income central city neighborhoods. I kind of I kind of like the term gentrification because I think it makes it sound kind of nice and positive and gentle. But I would also go for neighborhood change as maybe more of a neutral, less incendiary way. I would also go for displacement. That mm -hmm. is much, I mean, it's not quite, it's not Apocalypse. the most incendiary, but well, but I think, you know, I, I don't think that gentrification can be inclusive because gentrification by design is a product of displacement. So I want to ask each of you, and I might answer these myself if we have time. I want to ask each of you three questions. How big of a problem do you think gentrification in Worcester is? What do you think is the best available solution, given that all solutions have trade-offs and all solutions have political challenges and whatever? And then third, maybe most importantly, what's the most gentrifying thing you've ever done? Eleanor Gilmore, go. <laughs> How big of a problem is gentrification in Worcester? Um, I think it's not as bad as other cities across the country. We're smaller. We haven't hit our peak of of renaissance revitalization um, but with any revitalization comes the threat of gentrification we're, we're seeing that all across the board the downtown that's getting more expensive and with this conversation around the midtown mall for example with eminent domain and, and are the businesses that are um, locally owned predominantly low income are they going to get to stay um, even though the rest of downtown is changing and I also think that Again, 
gentrification is about power. It's about systems of power. And so when you when you start giving more power to people of a wealthier, whiter status who already have all the power anyway, then you just continually stretch that gap. And so all of these adjacent neighborhoods, right? Gentrification exists in you have these concentric concentric circles of yes. consequences. So given that, what's your number one solution that you would suggest in number gentrification one. in Worcester? Given that there's probably a dozen things we should do, what's, what's your number one? Well, I, w- I would like to city, the city of Worcester to come out and say some of our development trajectory is forcing gentrification. We acknowledge that and we would like to work with communities to mitigate that. We would like you to help us understand how to deconstruct our conventional development policies that favor things like uh, high-income neighborhoods. And we, we want to have that conversation with you because we don't want to gentrify. So recognizing this at a municipal level and st- at least starting a process around gentrification on the municipal level. Just would acknowledging be, uh, it, too. Something. I think people get really defensive about gentrification. And mm-hmm. I, to, to develop well, to, to be... To be inclusive, you have to be willing to take criticism and stand up and say, I didn't know, or thank you, thank you for bringing this particular lens to what I'm doing. Let's, let's talk about it. So what's the most gentrifying thing you've done? I said this earlier. I think I'm, I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this, but I, I think, and it's a larger conversation, I think going to Clark has been the most gentrifying thing that I've done. And I say that because for all of the great, and I'm so proud of being a Clarkie and the experience that I got and how it's led me to where I am now, but, and for all of the work that Clark does, I don't think that they do enough to really understand their position in the neighborhood and how as an institution, they may be contributing to their own mini gentrification of Maine South. Brendan Mellican. One, I just want to say thank you for that. I mean, that is Jack Foley we can hear taking an axe to the uh, radio tower above us right now. But uh, and I, I love that Foley. sort of self-awareness for Clark is probably one of the most helpful things that it's, it, it is. I say this as a local who loves the school dearly. Sure. It's become a caricature of itself in many ways. And that's unfortunate. Um, <clears throat> I'm reading your notes. Uh, how big of an issue is gentrification in the city of Worcester? Uh, I don't think it will be for another 10, 20 years. I think we're so, so jumping the gun in terms of what we see happening. Uh, we're just starting to hit, just from a numbers perspective, we're just starting to hit that 30% metric for the median household income. I know that doesn't do anything to mitigate the uh, needs of folks well below that median household income, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves if we're talking about displacement uh, as our population is growing um, and, and getting more diverse at the same time while it's growing. It's becoming less white while it, while simultaneously becoming more educated, uh, higher earning, uh, and, well, yeah, less white. So I, I, it's a problem, but down the road. Um, solution, universal basic income, man. Andrew Yang, 2020. Thank you. Um, What's the most gentrifying thing you've done? Dude, I was a part of a white hip-hop outfit uh, 20 years ago. Come on, that's easy. That was like oh slam. <laughs> nice work. Nice yeah. work. So I, you know, I think uh, gentrification is kind of a problem. I have friends who've moved out of the out of the the poor the poor neighborhood near me because it's gotten less poor which which is not good i don't like this so i think that the solution to gentrification is 
to work on affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the end point of that argument is universal basic income, obviously. Um, that, that like right now our affordable housing solution in Worcester is to say to people, you can live in a bunch of really, really terrible falling apart buildings in a bunch of terrible neighborhoods and they'll be cheap because of that. And this seems like not a good affordable housing solution to me. And so if people are coming in and saying, hey, I want to like fix up these buildings. Hey, I want to spend some political capital to try to get some more municipal services to these neighborhoods. I would say, great. And if the flip side of that is that some people are going to be price, priced out of that neighborhood, I would say this is a price that is probably an okay price to pay versus the, op- the alternative, which is to say we're going to shut down gentrification and let these neighborhoods keep decaying. And like, I kind of feel like those are the two like those are the two ways that it can go. I would rather it go the first way, but not but with not without also focusing on like yeah, like affordable housing is is something we have to keep working on. And the way that I put this to people, if I want to be condescending to them, as I say, uh, if you don't like the forward march of capitalism, you're going to like the backward march of capitalism less. <laughs> and I feel like the backward march of capitalism is our current system. The most gentrifying thing I have ever done is I moved into Tompkins Square Plaza. Uh, which was a brand new 124-unit apartment building in the East Village in New York between uh, uh, Avenue B and Avenue C on 7th Street. And I moved in there just after it opened, so I was one of the first tenants. And about two months after it opened, right across the street, the uh, Esperanza Community Garden, which had like a cool like coquille frog, mm-hmm. Puerto Rican frog mm-hmm. thing. I don't know if it's made of paper mache or metal or what. Over the gateway, people were like, occupying this place. People were like sleeping in that frog overnight to keep people from demolishing that garden. But two months after I moved into this market rate building, that garden was bulldozed. <sighs> thanks for listening to the show. <laughs> Thank you for being on with us. Thank Gabby, you for th- having me. Gabby, thanks for engineering the show as usual. I mean, we didn't, uh, this was, I feel like this was all over the place. And I feel like we also had a lot of good conversation, though. We didn't even get a chance to say that Brent crude oil is $66 a barrel, down 1% of the week, and Bitcoin is $3,800, down 3% of the week. But we'll say that next week on 508. <laughs> See you then, guys. Bye bye. <laughs>